So we're all familiar with the idea of the material and the form. Yes. Okay, good. So I'm not regretting it so far. But don't test us. Okay. So the material of something is what? What it's made of, right? And the form of something is? What it is. Very good. The mahus, the what it is, right? Versus what it's made of. Good. Okay. So even though in some absolute sense, the world is not made of anything, right? But in a more local sense, everything has material and everything has form, right? This cup is made of plastic. This cup is made of paper, right? So when I say that the world is not made of anything, I only mean that in the most absolute sense, but on any particular level of reality we look at, clearly things are made of things, yes? Okay. So what I want to do is I want to start off by discussing the difference between physical material and non-physical material, or spiritual material, if you will. But by spiritual, I simply mean that it is not physical. Physical, okay? Like nothing, even oxygen. Right. right. Okay. okay. Because what really differentiates physicality from things which are not physical is the way the material is. The physical material is fundamentally different than non-physical material. Now. Um, a few points of honesty. There is a view in Judaism that only physical things have material and non-physical things do not have material. This is the view of the Rambam, Maimonides, um, but the view of the Ramban and Nachmanides and the Kabbalists and um, most famously um, um, Shlomo Ibn Gabriel, who's a fascinating figure, if you ever want to Google somebody. Shlomo Ibn Gabriel, um, Ibn Gabriel, um, argue that there is a notion of non-physical material, and I'm just going to give you the basic argument. Um, whatever differentiates one spiritual thing from another spiritual thing, they are both not God. So there is something of their, what they're made of, this non-godliness, if you will. This, there's God, and these are not God. And so there's some, something, something to what they are, or some, so, something about what they are, which is not being godly. And so there is some kind of a material to their being. Obviously, it's not a physical. So I'm going to just ignore the view of the Rambam because in Kabbalah, that view is broadly speaking ignored and Hasidism is broadly speaking ignored. Um, if I was going to give a more in-depth series of classes on the topic, I would explore the issue and show how these ideas also can be resonant and read into the Rambam and refine the issue. But I just want for a purpose of honesty to say that I'm going to do, teach the class more simply and just ignore what the Rambam says and follow all these other thinkers. The second th purpose thing uh, um, is that I'm going to say things about physical material which um, are not 100% true, but are generally true and good enough for the purposes of this class. Okay, so a further reading both of the Rambam and the Ramban and other thinkers would show that the dichotomy I'm making between non-physical material Spiritual material and physical material is not as some of the things are, are not as absolute as I'm making them out to be, but broadly speaking, they're correct. And I think for the purpose of a one time class, it's helpful just to ignore those complications. But I want to be honest that I am ignoring those two complications for the purpose of making the class easier to understand. Okay? All right. So, the 
the first thing that I want to do in this class is I want I want to I want to do I want to do three things. I first want to explain, broadly speaking, what is the difference between physical material and non-physical material. Because that really is where the difference between physicality and non-physicality is, not so much in the form. And then I want to focus on how physicality is, in a sense, the source of all evil. However you conceptualize evil, it's the, it's the problem. It's the, the ultimate problem of evil has to do with physicality. Which would then make us think that what would be the ideal state? Okay, then I want to switch it around and say that the most godly state of being is to be physical. Okay, that's going to be the outline of the class. So how physical material is different from non-physical material, and then why that is um, and the source of all evil, and then, on the other hand, why that is actually the most godly thing that we could possibly have. Okay, so what I want to first do is to make an observation. Can you encounter, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use, I'm gonna use, because non-physical things are, are non-physical, we're gonna need a stand-in, or, or a representative non-physical thing to volunteer to be the non-physical thing we're gonna talk about. And the non-physical thing we're gonna use are gonna be ideas. Are ideas the only kind of non-physical thing there are? No. But are they the ones that are easiest for us to relate to? And those are about as non-physical as you can go with er everyday human beings having a sense of what we're talking about. So we're going to contrast ideas with cups. That's basically what we're going to do in this class. Okay? Emotions sort of on that level. So emotions, I'm avoiding emotions because emotions, as we all know, um, they, they, uh, um, on the one hand, they're not physical in like, the sense that the cup is a physical thing, right? But on the other hand, if we actually reflect on our Emotions, we see that they are quite physical, right? If you change your physical state, such as your breathing, you literally change your emotional experience. And so it, it, the, using emotions is to really divide between physical things and non-physical things is messier. So if I had to make a, again, what's the thing that's mostly, as far non-physical as we can go, regular everyday human beings, that's kind of a love intuitive understanding, and keeping it as black and white as possible, we're gonna use ideas and physical objects. But if you understand the idea, you can then apply it and get the complexities and you can start subdividing and do lots of fun stuff with it. Okay. It's like bread. Once you understand the dynamics of flour, water, and yeast, you can start playing around with it, do all sorts of fun stuff. You just have to understand the basics. I told you guys I've learned to make bread, yes? It's fascinating. That's why this was on your mind. <laughs> it makes sense now. Yeah. Bread is just fat. There's so much you can do with it. There's so few ingredients. It's amazing. Why, why, this, why do you bread? I like cooking. And I love cooking for years. And I always like avoided baking because it seemed like too complicated in, in a way that cooking isn't. And then one day I just said, I'm going to go for it. And I researched and I practiced. And like, turns out it's... It's, <laughs> it's like physics. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's, it is. That's why I always think you would like it. So... Okay, so there was a movie, which I did not see, but this movie is a, a great movie for illustrating our purposes. The title of this movie, I'm not recommending you see the movie, um, but the title of this movie, from my knowledge, is The Gods Must Be Crazy. Um, the plot of the movie is as follows. Somebody is flying over an African, I think it's African village, I, again, I didn't see this movie, um, that is extremely isolated and has not encountered the modern world. 
and they're flying over it in a helicopter and they finish their coke and they throw the bottle out the window. And the coke bottle lands in this African village. And so to this African village, what? No, it just lands in the dirt and the thud. And and after this African village, the gods just threw them this weird artifact. And then, and now the, the whole plot of the movie, which again, I don't see, so I don't know exactly what happens, but basically everybody has a different theory as to what this thing is and why the God sent it to them. And it completely drives the village into all sorts of crazy antics and chaos. And I don't even know if it's a comedy or a tragedy. I never saw it. But the plot of the movie centers around this idea that you can encounter a physical object and have no sense of its form. It is impossible to encounter a physical object, to literally be holding it, right? Have a full contact with it, full engagement with it, and yet completely oblivious as to what this is. In contrast, is it possible to encounter an idea and not know what the idea is? Now, words, you can encounter the words and not know what the idea is, right? I could say, for instance, I could say um, um, homeostasis. That's a word, and maybe you know what, what the idea of homeostasis is. Maybe you don't, but... That's a different thing. That's a word. If you encounter the idea right, with, your, with, with your cognition, it means to know what the idea is, at least on some level. Right? In fact, if you are, this is, a, this is a difference between confusion and ignorance. If you are truly ignorant of something, you don't know what it is, right? If you're confused about it, you must at least have some sense of what it is and why you find it confusing, right? Does that make sense that there's an ignorance and confusion? There's two different senses. It's important to differentiate the two, okay? Um, very often people say I'm confused and they're not confused. They're just ignorant. Someone made reference to something. They don't know what that thing is and so there's a big blank spot in their mind and they just... Meaning once you know it, you won't be confused. No, once you know what something is, you could still be confused. For instance, if I, um, uh, you know, I, I, I encounter, um, say you use math. Math is a simple idea, right? So if you, if, if you're someone sitting in math class, say I'm confused. Very often the person sitting in math class is not confused. They're just completely ignorant. The, the teacher is saying words and using symbols and they have no idea what this means. The person who's confused under, knows what um, a, a, um, a fraction is and there's something about it that they find confusing. Right? Or they know what, um, or for instance, something can be confused about, say, more abstract concepts, like say freedom. Something confusing about freedom. What's something that's confusing about the idea of freedom? Everyone knows what freedom is, right? Okay, so now here's the thing. If you're not allowed to do something, that seems to go against freedom, right? It seems to. It seems to, right? That makes sense, right? So we have a problem. Because if I can't do something, that goes against freedom. If you can't do something, that goes against freedom. But now we have a problem because me doing one thing often comes at the expense of you doing another thing. So my freedom contradicts your freedom, and that's something confusing about the nature of freedom. But you can be confused about that only because you know, at least on some level, what freedom is. You can't encounter an idea and be completely clueless as to what it is. You can encounter a physical object and have no idea what it is. So why is that? Okay, we're going to hold off on that. So that's one difference between physical things and non-physical things is that non-physical things cannot hide their form. It's not possible to encounter it and have no sense of what it is. A physical thing, you could encounter it and be completely unable to figure out what it is. 
Oh, an idea because you never encountered the idea. In other words, your mind has never come into contact with the idea. You've come into contact with the words. Remember, words and ideas are not the same thing. I can say the same idea in different words. Very often, by the way, people are, are people are people don't understand things not because they don't understand the ideas. They just don't understand the way the words are being used. And conversely, sometimes um, people are very good at using the words, but they don't really know what they mean by the words. They just got used good at playing the language game. So that's right. So he never encountered the idea. So that's basically he just his mind never his mind is in other words his he's not his mind is engaging with the idea and doesn't know what the idea is. His mind can't engage with the idea. It's like a blind person can't see something. A deaf person can't hear something. I can see this cup, right? I can see it. I can touch it. I can I can I, I can interact with it using different senses, right? An idea, you have to interact with your intellect. If your intellect doesn't have the capacity to interact with an idea, you're ignorant of that idea, but then you just, you, you don't know what it is because you've never, you never really encountered it. You may have encountered other people who know about it, other people who are talking about it, but you've never encountered the idea. But you can encounter a bottle and see the bottle, touch the bottle, feel the bottle, describe the bottle, and still have no sense that what it is is a bottle. No, you would. That's the exact thing. Is if you saw an angel, you would know it's an angel. But wasn't the story with Hagar? So, so, so the thing is like this. It depends how you understand angels. That story does not necessarily. That has many interpretations. But very, very simply, not necessarily. When the Torah describes someone encountering an angel, they encountered an angel. They may have encountered a representation of the angel, the way you encounter a word as a representation of an idea. Okay, so. If you follow the view that Hagar encountered the angel and didn't know it was an angel, she didn't actually encounter the angel. What did she encounter? She encountered some physical phenomenon which represented the angel. Okay? If you say she encountered the angel, then she would have known what, that it was an angel. And she would have known which kind of angel it is. It's, like, it's not... Now, you could still not have full, complete knowledge of it, but that, that, you still have to be confused about certain things. But there's a sense of the form... The sense of what this is, is is something that comes through automatically in a non-physical entity. It is not something that happens automatically with a physical entity. Okay. Now, the next difference, okay, the next difference has to do, and these are related, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, these are related, but I'm, I'm gonna make them into different things. The next thing has to do with the nature of existence. Okay, and what I mean by existence is there's a term that's used in Hasidus, which is, um, it's a very simple term, and the term is takes up space. Literally in Hebrew, tofes makom, takes up space. Something exists because it takes up space. Something that takes up no space doesn't exist. I'll explain to you what I mean. Something exists. What I mean here by something exists, it means that you can encounter it, you can engage with it, right? So this cup exists, therefore it's possible to see it. It's possible to touch it. It's possible to do all sorts of things. Now, if I'm going to be able to see it, there has to be, where do I look? Do I look here? Do I look there? There's somewhere, there's some place where I can see it. There's some place my hand has to reach in order to touch it. 
right? So it exists by taking up a certain space, okay? Now, ideas also take up space. I'll give you an example. If you understood a particular idea as you just did, and I give you a different idea, because your mind understands one idea and that doesn't allow you to understand the other idea because they seem to be, it's like, I can't put this, what is this, this is tape. I can't put this tape where the cup is unless I move the cup out of the way, right? So things are, so from the idea that I was teaching you to enter your mind, the other idea had to kind of move out of your mind, right? So there's this notion of taking up a space. It's not a physical space, but it's a kind of a mental space. Okay, right? Does that make a kind of intuitive sense? You can't, like, things are there because there's a somewhere where they are. Whether you mean that in physical or non-physical sense. Okay. Now, what I want to do is, so let's say like this. I have this object, this cup, and I have this roll of scotch tape, right? If I want to put this scotch tape where the cup is, the cup has to move out of the way, right? If the cup won't move out of the way, it won't happen. Simple enough? Okay. Now, these are solid objects. That's intuitive. It's also true in, on any other physical object as well. Like, for instance, when you're swimming, if you're moving forward, the water has to move out of the way. Right? Same thing with the air. If you want to get really more complicated and talk about how things dissolve into each other, it's still true, but the idea should be relatively intuitive. Okay? Now, same thing with an idea. If you understand one thing, and I'm trying to explain to you a different idea, you're going to have a problem understanding the different idea because your mind is being occupied. It's, space in your mind has been taken up with this original idea, right? So you have to move the other idea out of the way. That make sense? Okay. So that idea that this cup takes up space and therefore the, 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 the um, scotch tape can't be there, does that have anything to do with the fact that this is a cup and this is scotch tape? Mm-hmm. Or it would be true if this was a rock and this was an elephant. Yeah. It wouldn't matter. So the... The taking up space is a feature of its material or its form? Its form. Oh, wait. Why can't this be where this is? Does it have anything to do with the fact that this is scotch tape and this is a cup? Right? In fact, this and the air, right? If I'm going to put this cup, right now on the table there's air. If I'm going to put this down on the table, what's going to happen? The air is going to have to do? Move away, right? It's the same issue. So it doesn't have anything to do with the form of the things? It's the material. This material doesn't allow this material to be there. But now let's think about those ideas. Could you understand one idea and at the same time understand a different idea? When do you have to set one idea aside in order to learn a new idea? When those two ideas are what? Conflicting in terms of what? In what they are, right? The conflict is in the form. An idea which say, I'll use this as a controversial example, but it illustrates the point. If you have an idea of egalitarianism, right, that fundamentally people are, are and should be treated as, as equal in every respect, regardless of gender, right? And then someone is teaching you an idea that's based on a patriarchal notion, right, that somehow there's, there's gender roles, right? You're gonna have a hard time understanding what they're saying, not because one idea needs to make space for another idea, because these ideas, what the ideas are, are conflicting. So the conflict here is not in the material of the idea, because not any two ideas, you could, you, could, you could have an idea of egalitarianism and also learn physics, there's no, there's, no problem, there's no problem there. But what the idea is makes it not fit with what this idea is, unless you have some sort of more rich complexity which allows you to blend egalitarianism and patriarchy in some weird way, but whatever. 
But then it's not so different, maybe. So what you're doing is showing that these forms are not really contradictory. In other words, when it's one... Oh, right. So when we say that something takes up space in order to exist and therefore something else can't be there, with physical things, that's a feature of its material. With non-physical things, that's a feature of its form. What? I don't know what its material is. Okay, so let me ask you a question. And it's a very, very simple question. How many angels could there be? Well, because they each have a separate role, they need to be one at a time. Oh, so the, the answer to that question is exactly what is. They each have a separate role. So what you do is you make a list of all the different roles that angels could play, and that's how many angels you could have. Make sense? How many people can you have in a room? Many. Well, it depends how big the room is. See how that's a different thing? Because each person is going to take up, you know, a certain amount of space because of their body and just you need space for the bodies, right? So you see, it's like a different question and I'm asking you how many angels you could have versus how many physical people you could have. Right, it has to do with the form. One has to do with the form, one has to do with the material. Do we even have material? An angel. Oh, an angel has this non-physical material. The last difference, okay? The last difference um, when you make something that is physical, do you expect it to last forever? Why not? It erodes. It erodes. So there's an interesting thing. The material of a physical thing is kind of trying to shake off its form. Um, I, I, there's a, the Rambam gives an analogy for this. It's a somewhat of a gendered analogy, but it nonetheless illustrates the point in a very intuitive way. And the analogy is a woman who no longer loves her husband and is trying to get divorced to marry someone else. Mm. So she's trying to shake him off in order to be married to someone else and he says that's all of the physical material as much as it's currently in one form on some level what is it trying to do shake off that form and adopt a new form but then what ends up happening gets the new form does it stay there no no on the other hand and this is going to be on the other hand things that are not physical unless you do actively do something the material will hold that form forever in other words, the material, of, the material of a spiritual form is loyal to that form completely, whereas the material of a physical thing, physical material, is inherently disloyal. And that's why any physical thing ultimately erodes. erodes. When you say it's replacing the what happens? Oh, because it turns into soil. Yeah, it turns, always turns into something. It's never just pure material. Okay, so what are our three differences between physical and non-physical things? Number one, the, you can encounter a physical thing and only be aware of its material and not have any sense of its form. A spiritual thing you cannot encounter without having at least some basic sense of its form. Like an idea. If, you, if your mind has conceived of the idea, understood the idea in any way, then you have some sense of what the idea is, but you could physically see an object and have no clue as to what it is. Um, a physical thing takes up space 
because of its material. So it's in, it's in a conflict with other things merely because they're competing for this space for the material. Whereas spiritual things, there's no material conflict one with the other, but their forms might not coincide, right? Like, so if you understand one idea, it makes it difficult to understand contradictory ideas, but it doesn't make it difficult to understand just other ideas. And last but not least, physical material is constantly trying to shed its form and adopt another. But of course, once it adopts another, it sheds that to adopt yet another still. And spiritual material holds on to its form unless the form is ripped away from it. So are these kinds of materials the same kind of material, the physical material and non-physical material? Now, if we think about it, what's the difference? Like, and this is hard because we're dealing with things that are abstract, but what's the difference between physical material and non-physical material then? What unites these three differences? You can, the material can show itself without showing the form. The material is in competition with other material and the material seeks to shut off the form and adopt another form. Versus the material can't hide the form. Right? The material doesn't contradict other material and the material is loyal to the form. What's the kind of difference between those two senses of material? The relationship with the form. The relationship with the form. What's different about the relationship with the form? more united with physical things it's two separate things and I think I want that's exactly right let's go a little bit deeper the physical material is something in its own right and only secondarily does it have a relationship with the form whereas if whereas spiritual material its whole being, its whole identity is the way it services, is the role it plays for the form. So I want you to give a very simple example. We have a body and a soul. Okay. What happens when a person dies? What? Before that, what happens? The soul leaves the body. And what do you discover at that point? That the body is really not a person at all. What is the body? What is the body? It's flesh. But then you see that the flesh is actually just like a, is, is, is just a state of the body because it's not really flesh because it can't even stay as flesh. Very soon that flesh starts decomposing and what you discover is that it's just kind of some kind of a, you know, organic mush or in the words of the Tanakh, it's dirt. It's a double. So what is the body? It's dirt. And then the dirt is being made to be the material of, that makes up a person. But fundamentally, it's not a person. What is it? It's a separate thing. It's dirt. What? Ultimately, this is not a cup. This is paper. Ultimately, this isn't paper. This is something else. And so with physical material, the material is really its own thing that is then being, and I'm going to use this word intentionally for right now, forced into taking on a certain form. But that form is being imposed from the outside. It has no intrinsic connection to that form. It has no deep relationship with that form. And therefore, does it necessarily announce to the world what the form is? No. Does it necessarily um, 
see itself defined by that form. No, it has its own relationships. It, you know, just it's there. I'm physical. I'm here. I take up the space, and it can. It seeks to cast off that form as an imposition on itself. Whereas non-physical material, its whole identity, its whole being, its whole role is just to make that spiritual thing real. That there should be some reality to it. So what this means is, is that there's an inherent conflict, an inherent tension in physical things that does not exist in spiritual things. What do you mean that spiritual material holds on to its formless? It's like so now I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm going to use the Rambam's analogy because, because we're dealing with abstractions and abstractions are hard to understand. We're going to use this analogy, okay? So, but before I do so, what I mean, the purpose of analogy is to say anything about men and women proper? No, okay? In other words, it's just a way of viewing things. Okay, so now let's imagine two types of women. We'll call one the, we'll use Marxist terminology, right? One is a woman who has been oppressed and has not achieved class consciousness. In other words, she is perfectly comfortable as seeing herself as the wife and mother in the patriarchy. And the other woman is a one who's achieved a class consciousness and sees herself as an autonomous individual, okay? As an independent human being, okay? Two different women, and they're both married. You understand they have very different senses of their relationship with their husband. Right? One sees her whole life as to make her husband's life more real, to bring about a family and a home so that her husband has a more of a presence in reality, both in a, in, a, in, a, in a physical sense, to have children, have legacy, to have a social standing, right? That's, that's, she is an adjunct of her husband, and that's her whole sense of herself. Right? If, now, you had a woman who was that and only that in her own personal psyche, would she ever be interested in any other man? No. Now let's go the opposite extreme. If you had a woman who sees herself as completely autonomous and liberated and happens to be married to a particular man, right, if that man doesn't particularly strike her fancy anymore for whatever reason, she might be interested in someone else. Now there is the complications that she's currently married to the first man, hence creating all sorts of tensions. Which, which woman represents physical material and which woman represents spiritual material? Physical is the latter. Physical is the latter. Now, before we start making judgment calls, remember what I said that the first half of the class is we're going to present physical material as the source of all evil, and the second half of the class we're going to present it as the most godly thing? Okay, so there's complexity there. It's not a, we'll see there's two sides of this coin. So, and this explains like a basic dynamic of our existence. How come we strive to be one thing and yet constantly are something else? Isn't that weird? Why are we striving to be one thing? Because we have a form. Why are we constantly end up being something else? Because we have not just material, but a specific kind of material. What kind of material? Physical material. Why is it that we're able to rebel against God? Not what motivates it. Why is it possible? Free will doesn't necessarily mean that it's not. For instance, I right now have free will, okay? But it is not possible for me to stick a needle into my eye. Why not? I have free will, but it's still not possible for me to do so. Right. 
Right? In other words, f- whatever free will is, it is constrained by your, by your own sensibilities, right? I have, a, I have a sense of like my desires, my instincts, my experiences, all of those things constrain my, my, my free will. Um, maybe in extreme circumstances you could stick a needle into your eye by completely suppressing your instincts because something is of extreme importance to you. But barring that extreme circumstance, nobody can do it. So if reality is created by God and God is the sole arbiter of what is real and what is not, there is nothing else to the reality other than what God makes of it. Could any being who has any sense of self-interest actually rebel against God? Does that make any sense at all? Right? You, you, you couldn't do such a thing. So how is that we're able to rebel against God? We're physical, and therefore, because we are physical, we can encounter reality without having a sense of what reality actually is. But if we were spiritual beings, even if we were evil spiritual beings, by the way, Kabbalah speaks about evil spiritual beings. Yes. But evil spiritual beings cannot rebel against God. In what sense are they evil? Okay, I was, I'm going to use a slightly different... You're right, but I'm going to use slightly different things. Um, if, somebody, if somebody does a good thing and that brings me pleasure, what does that say about me? What kind of person am I? Someone did something good and it brings me pleasure to know that this person did the right thing. What kind of person does that make me? Not selfish. Does that make me a good person, a bad person? Nothing, just a person. No, that makes me a good person. It doesn't make me entirely good. Why? Because you're affected? Because, yeah, because if I derive pleasure from good things, that means that goodness resonates with it. So it needs to be a good person. Now, if somebody does the wrong thing and that brings me pleasure, what kind of person does that make me? If somebody is healed and that brings me pleasure, that probably makes me a... If someone is suffering, it brings me pleasure, it makes me a... So are there spiritual beings that derive pleasure from sin and suffering? Yes, there are. And they're called evil spiritual beings. But because they're spiritual beings, can they, are, they, they, they are aware of what reality is on some very basic level. And therefore, can they rebel against God? No. How come we can rebel against God? Because we're not aware of reality. What about us makes us not aware of reality is that the physicality of us. So the same way back in that movie I mentioned, right, that people could see the Coke bottle and have no idea that it was a Coke bottle, we can experience reality, have no sense of what reality actually is, and therefore we have no sense of the absoluteness of God's sovereignty over everything, and therefore we can actually therefore develop beliefs about our ability to reject God and go out and get along with our lives. If you were spiritual, that would just be psychologically impossible for you to do. Because you're connected to God? Because you would just be aware. It's like, I, it's... I can't walk, I can't, try, try the following thing, yeah? Try to run through the wall. I'm serious, try it. Run as fast as you can try and run through the wall. You know what will happen? No, you stop won't. You'll stop yourself, you'll slow, your, you'll, you'll slow yourself down enough that when you hit the wall, because you just don't buy that you can run through the wall because you have that sense of that reality, right? If you had a sense that reality is dictated by God and God alone, could you rebel against God? No. What is it that, blinds us to reality is the physicality of things. The same thing that can blind a person, right? 
to what a Coke bottle is, is that the Coke bottle is made of glass, and glass is not inherently a Coke bottle. Glass is just glass. And if you don't know about Coke bottles to begin with, there's no reason to think it's a Coke bottle. Oh, so one of the things that we see is that physicality is a source of ignorance. Is ignorance a good thing? No. No. Okay. Next thing. Have you ever noticed that people have conflicts with each other? Yeah. Why do we have conflicts with each other? We're not on the same page. Really? That's not true. I'm married. No, you're I'm married. And um, I'm happily married. And my, and my wife are not on the same page on many things. And it doesn't mean we're always in conflict with each other. In fact, I would say most of the time we're not in conflict and most of the time we're not on the same page. Mm-hmm. Important thing to know in life. Is it about understanding? Even if you're in conflict? Maybe part of it's about understanding. Part of it's patience. Part of it's realizing that there's space for other things. Yeah. There's a lot that goes... It's not, there's, a, there's a lot of just recognizing that you don't have to be on the same page of things to get along. You really don't. Now, there are certain things you practically do, but like, they're, they're actually not as common as you would think. Well, I want to ask the other question. So why is it that people have conflict? And people have conflict over, and you could have conflicts over things that like, again, two other people, like they also are not on the same page and they're not always conflict over it. So why? If you are the smartest person in your high school, you probably feel pretty good about yourself. Yes? If you're the smartest person in your high school, what kind of university are you going to attend? And when you attend that school, will you be the smartest person in the university? No. So now how do you feel about yourself? Now, have you become any less smart? So that's kind of weird, right? You know, if I got my self-worth from my actual intelligence, there's no reason for it to change. I'm not saying you should get your self-worth from your intelligence, but let's just go with that, that self-worth is, should be based on your intelligence or other factors. It hasn't changed, and anything is probably enhanced slightly because now you're encountering higher-level ideas, right? So, so then why did the person go from feeling that, like they're the greatest thing to garbage, which evaluates like a very common problem that happens in elite universities? Why? Because was the self-worth coming from the form, from how intelligent you are, or from that there's a particular spot at the apex of the chart and you were at the top and now you're at the bottom? It had nothing to do with the intelligence, right? The fact that this, is, this cup is here has nothing to do with the fact that it's a cup, it's just the fact that it's there. And if this cup feels pretty good about being here, not about the fact that it's a cup, but that it's here, and then comes along this scotch tape, and pushes the cup out of being here. The cup is no, still a cup, right? That hasn't changed, but if the cup got all of its sense of value from the fact that it was in the spot it used to be, and now it's not in that spot anymore, how does it feel? So this notion of ego, this notion of the sense that we are in like a fundamental competition with each other, doesn't really come from our form. If you're smart, that's great. <laughs> What's wrong, with, what's wrong with the fact that there's other people who are smarter, even people who are smarter than you? Why is that a problem? You think one thing, other people think different things. Okay, what's the problem? But if it's not about those qualities, it's about just, I am the one who occupies this space. And all of a sudden I sense someone else occupies the space I'm supposed to occupy. 
then I feel like they are in conflict with me. Just one second. Spiritual beings, do they have conflicts with each other? No. They do. Okay. But they only have conflicts when their forms are irreconcilable, which is not a common thing. What would that mean? It's like two people when they're sitting and learning, and I think that the meaning of this text is one thing, and you think the meaning of the text is another thing, right? And we, in our learning, we have a conflict, right? But only in our learning. The minute we step out of the learning, do we have a conflict? Okay, now in real life, you have two professors, two rabbis, two doctors, and they vehemently disagree about a particular point in their field. Is it often the case that their conflict spills beyond just the intellectual endeavor and moves into the actual personal dislike for each other? So does that have anything to do with about the ideas that they understand? No, it has to do with something else. That is a product of the fact that they are physical and that, is, that physicality is influencing their psyche. Two angels only are in conflict when their forms are incompatible. And if you can show how the forms can be compatible, then there's not a conflict. So, what's the source of our ignorance? The physical matter. What's the source of our egotism and all of the, and all of the, all the conflict and negativity that, that produces? By the way, conflict that doesn't have egotism is actually very constructive. Right? Two people who disagree about something, and they, they might not agree, but, but each side, our, our sages say, if you have like a knife, and you want to sharpen it, you need another piece of metal to sharpen it against. If I have an idea and you have a different idea and we start debating our ideas, even if we never come to agreement, my idea has been refined by its encounter with your idea. So I'm not opposed to you disagreeing with me in principle. But on the level of the material, there's the sense of just like, if I'm here, you can't be here. If I'm the smart person, you can't be the smart person. If I'm the expert, you can't be the expert. If I'm in charge of this, if I'm the, in charge of this group, you can't be in charge of this group. And those are psychological manifestations of the same dynamic we see playing out on the most basic physical level, that where one object is, the other object has to move aside just because it's there. So egotism, where does that come from? Physicality. All right, what was our last thing? Our last thing was that physical things, do they last? Okay, so the temporal nature of things, the mortal nature of things, the fact that things fall apart, which I think we all intuitively see as a negative thing, that is all due to our physicality. Okay, so if you're a physical being, you are doomed to a life of some ignorance. Yeah? Conflict that is completely irrational, right? And you are going to be engaged in some degree of self-destruction. Right? And that's basically the source of all the negativity in the world, right? So... What? Physicality. Well, physicality lasts, but a particular physical thing doesn't last. Right? The, the most grand edifice will eventually crumble, but what it crumbles turns into something else. So maybe the physicality itself is lasting. But the, so like if you're, in other words, if I really want, I'll give you an example. If you, if you, if you build, a, you know, no matter how healthy you are, what's eventually gonna happen though? Because your body is physical. No matter how successful you run your business, what will eventually happen? It will end. So therefore, if you want a life, if you want a life that is a life that is truly good, you would like to escape your physicality, right? Hence the idea 
that in Judaism, that this world is merely a precursor to a spiritual world to come. This is the idea in Judaism. And that makes a kind of sense. Now, in the spiritual world, even if I allow for evil in the spiritual world, but the evil in the spiritual world is a different kind of evil because the evil in the spiritual world is just, that's the way the thing was made. In a certain sense, you can't really blame it. It's not really sense. Like, you know, it plays a role, it plays a role, that's it. And if you're not evil, you're not evil. In the spiritual world, what you're made of doesn't blind you to reality. What you're made of doesn't put you in ongoing conflict with everybody else. And what you're made of doesn't mean that ultimately you'll get destroyed. So now if you're a wise person, should you spend your time investing in your physical existence or your spiritual existence? Spiritual existence. And then we could say Torah Mitzvah is the guide to how to do that. Yeah. That's one way of looking at physicality in Judaism. Yeah. Irrational conflict. Rational conflict is like, let's say we have two different point, do, viewpoints on something and we discuss that. Even if in the end we, we disagree, that was a constructive endeavor. We refined our views. So that's a rational conflict, right? My wife and I have different, went to parent-teacher conferences. And afterwards, I, I, I told my wife, it's really good that children are raised by two parents. Um, because, and I said, you know, like, I, I, most of my friends, I think, are like this, is that men, I think, broadly speaking, have a tendency to think that like, things will work themselves out. And mothers tend to have a tendency to think that things need to be dealt with. And the truth of the matter is where? You need both. You need bo- and, and in that back and forth, you kind of find something. That's a, that, and the, the honest truth is, I, you know, very often I've heard not on the same page, and in that tension, constructive stuff comes out. But that's... That has to do with like the way you perceive things. That's that's like the conflict of form, right? But like then you have another kind of conflict, which is like, who gets to decide? Do I get to decide or she gets to decide? Like that's like other. Well, it's here or that's here. That that tendency in the psyche that I have to be in charge, or you ca- or you or you feel like you have to be in charge. That's a psycho. That's a, that's a psychological manifestation of our physicality. And so if you didn't have a physical body you only existed in a spiritual sense. You wouldn't feel this, that kind of conflict ever. And so you would only have rational, constructive disagreements, like the angels. Not petty disputes that tear communities and families apart, like we do. So. And then obviously like the fact that everything is ultimately just like a bluff because nothing lasts forever. Okay. So if I sufficiently... Um, um, made physicality seem to be a negative thing. Yeah. Okay, now, there is the thing that most of us have a hard time conceptualizing or imagining what a non-physical existence would be like, and so we you know, might cling to our physicality, but, you know, eventually we should mature out of that. Okay, how is physicality godlike? He created it to kind of So, let's think about it. Let's, what was the first thing I said about the difference between physicality and spirituality? Is that in a, if you encounter a physical thing, it's material doesn't let you see, necessarily see anything other than itself, right? It's just there. But I, is God have to be, sorry, let me put it this way. Does God have to play a role for someone else? Or he, could he just, like, be 
God? Does God have to play, you know, if, if reality is an orchestra, does God have to be playing an instrument? No, right? Everything that God creates has to have a role, has to have a place, has to have a thing, right? But God can just be God, right? So go back to the Coke bottle, right? The Coke bottle falls from the sky, right? But these African villagers, they don't see a Coke bottle. What do they just see? A piece of glass. So for them, the piece of glass can just be a piece of glass. Something that's physical just can be without having to have anything to enhance it. In other words, there's a weird way in which physicality is like a mirror image of God. Okay? Does God have to be kind? Why not? God is who he is. He doesn't have to be anything. And so to encounter God is not to see anything other than just, oh, that, he's there. That, he's there. When I, look, when I look around the world and I see the form of things, it's blinding me. That there's, there's, there's just a piece of plastic here. There's just a piece of felt here, right? Really? There's just a piece of felt. But the form blinds me to that, right? But a physical thing gives you the possibility of saying, you know what, there really is just a piece of felt here, right? When I take this to a... To, when I take this hat to a hat maker, he's able to like ignore the fact that it's a hat and just look at it as felt and see what can the felt do. He can just, there's the like underlying reality of just its own being. And so in a weird way, not, not all the infinite power that we could describe to God, but in a weird way, a physical thing has this notion of just, it's there. The way that God is just, he's there. He doesn't have to be something. In fact, let's move to the other thing. Physicality can change, right? It goes from one thing to another thing to another thing. What is the physicality saying? Let's go back to that, that, that woman, the liberated woman, right? The woman who's achieved class consciousness. What has she discovered? That she's her own person, right? She has an autonomy. Is autonomy a bad thing? That's pretty godlike, isn't it? What does the physical material have a sense of that spiritual material doesn't? It has a sense, I don't have to be a slave to a form. I don't have to be something specific. I can be myself. And if right now I want to be a hat, I'll be a hat. And if later I'm going to be something else, I'll be something else. The dirt can be a person. It can be a worm or go back to being dirt. It has a freedom that spirituality doesn't have. It has a flexibility. It has an autonomy that it doesn't have. Is it because of a lack of clarity? It, well, it, it depends so much. What you see is that the very same things that you can think about in physicality in a negative way, which we did in the first part of class, you can now think of those things. Instead of thinking of it as um, that physicality makes us ignorant because it blinds us to the form of things, you can also think of the opposite. Physicality um, isn't, isn't, isn't a slave to a particular way of being. Instead of thinking of physicality as something which is self-destructive, you can think of physicality as something that is autonomous and creative. Instead of thinking of physicality, what was our middle thing? Our middle thing was that physicality takes up space, right? Instead of thinking of physicality as something that needs to justify its self-worth, it can just accept that it has existence, right? What's the problem, by the way, with, with, what's the problem with using something to give yourself self-worth is that you're kind of implying that you're actually fundamentally worthless and it's this other thing that gives you self-worth. Uh, what makes an idea 
worthy of spending time on. That it's a good idea, right? No, think about it. I'm gonna give you two ideas, yeah? One idea is that people should strive to get along with each other. And the other idea is that people should buy ice cream whenever possible. Which idea should we spend more time developing? The first idea or the second idea? Yeah, but you're saying that with all of the humor in real life. Which idea is worthy of our consideration? The first, because it's a good idea. There's depth to it, right? But on the level of physicality, even the most lowly physical thing says, look, I'm here. You're going to have to deal with me. You can't just ignore me because I'm lowly, because I'm not pretty, because I'm not developed. The most ugly stone in the world is still going to something you're going to have to contend with because it's there. It has a, it has a worth to it in its mere being there. It doesn't have to justify it because it's pretty or it's nice or it's good. Right? The engineer at the end of the day has to contend with the fact that the material is there. Deal with it. So now a person comes and says, you know what? I might not be the smartest person. I might not be the prettiest person. I might not be the most righteous person. But guess what? I'm here. here. That's something only a physical being can say. And it's also only something God can say. In other words, there's a way in which form is very limiting. And so to make the material subject to the form... It might avoid all these negative implications that we spoke about the first part of the class, but it also is very ungodlike. <laughs> to be godlike would be, I'm here, I am, I don't have to be what anyone else says I'm going to be, and you have to contend with me merely because I am real, not because of any, not because I'm playing a role, not because I'm dancing to your fiddle. I think back again, the, the woman who's achieved a sense in her society that she's an autonomous human being just like every other person in society, such as an adjunct or a husband. Right? It can, that can create a lot of conflict for the institution of marriage, but it also has a positive side to it. And so we have this interesting thing. To say that physicality is the source of all evil is true. To say that physicality of all the creative things is the most godlike is also true. And so now we have a problem. Well, okay, well, so here's the thing if we use that as a way of coming closer to God, that would be good. In other words, if it's godlike, because, in other words, I'll give you an analogy, okay? I want to explain something to you, so I use an analogy. Now, if you get caught up in the analogy in and of itself, that's bad, right? But if you realize the analogy is an analogy, that's very useful, right? If God gives us an analogy for what it's like to be godlike so we can have a better appreciation of God, that would be good, right? And if that's an analogy we don't just observe but can actually inhabit and experience for ourselves, we'll make an even better analogy, right? So if God wants to convey to us what, it, what God really is, the most effective way to do that is to use a spiritual reality or a physical reality. Which is more godlike. A physical reality is a good analogy for what it's like to be godlike, but it's a dangerous analogy. That's exactly the point. So you take these things together. It is a very good analogy, other than the fact that it's dangerous. It's easily misconstrued. That's how good it is. That's how good it is, right? And so now you can kind of reverse it and see that spirituality is just merely a way to make sure we don't get the analogy wrong. Whoa, can you say that again? 
So it turns out from this point of view, spirituality is just there to help us to get, make sure we don't get the analogy wrong. In other words, spirituality is just the user's manual to the physicality so you get the physicality right. That you appreciate the autonomy and creativity and the value of pure being in your own physical existence are supposed to help you appreciate the God rather than get caught, in, get caught up in you know, the self-destructive conflict and ignorance of physicality. So, right, it's like if I were to, you know, if I, if, I, if, I, if I don't really know how to bake, I need someone to give me some sort of description, right? To explain things to me. But once I know how to bake, I can just kind of play with the recipes myself. Like I've been making, I've been making um, all kinds of breads. I don't use recipes. So like this past Shabbos, I made a holy challah. I make the holy challah. So I weighed out a certain amount of whole wheat dough. I'm like, okay, well, I, have, I have a whole wheat flour. If I have this much flour, I could put, you know, one egg. Mm, I'll put again this much oil, this much honey. Just start playing with numbers. And I think it'll come out something like this. Let's see if it works. But that ability comes because I read how other people have done this already, right? So spirituality is a guide to getting the good sides of physicality without getting caught up in the bad side of physicality. And in that sense, we, should we think of this world as merely the antechamber to get to a spiritual reality where we don't have any problems? And this way we think about it reverse, that the spiritual world is simply a model or a guide, like the picture on the box of the puzzle, to help you, put, to help you navigate the physicality to get the good elements of the physicality without getting caught up in the bad elements. Our sages say this world is like the antechamber and the world to come is like the banquet hall. You prepare yourself in the antechamber so that you can then enter the banquet hall. So that kind of sounds like the first way, right? The physical world is rife with ignorance, right? It's full of ego and conflict, right? Nothing lasts. So you don't want to spend your time here. You want to get what you need to get out of here in order to get to a world where everything is clear, everything is peaceful or at least constructive in its conflict and where things last. But then the same Mishnah says, one moment of tshuva and good deeds in this physical world is worth more than all of the life of the world to come. Meaning if you can live in the physical world and get only the way it's an analogy for God, helps you, gives you an appreciation for God, you have something that no spiritual being can even ever fathom. So you have this two ways. In order to escape the negativity of physicality, I have to pursue spirituality. But the goal of pursuing spirituality is to then give me a guide to how to relate to physicality because the true knowledge of God doesn't come from being spiritual, it comes from being physical. Because does God have to be something specific? Does God have to be in a particular way? Does God have to play a role? Does God have to um, follow anybody's rules? Does God have value because of what he can do? No. And the only thing that's like that in all of created reality is physicality, is physical material. And so if you're a physical being, you have the ability to have an intuitive sense of what it means to be autonomous, what it means to be creative, what it means to redefine yourself, what it means to have, to take up place just because you are. It gives you a, a good analogy for what God is like. So you have a deeper sense of God, provided you don't get stuck up on, and caught up in the ignorance conflict and mortality of it all. And so spirituality 
you have to, to escape the negativity of spirituality, you pursue physical, negativity of physicality, you pursue spirituality, but then you use spirituality as a template to model your physicality after, and only then you truly know God. Which, point to, which, by the way, means that ultimately, if the world is going to be as it should be, reality will be a physical reality or a spiritual reality? Physical. Physical, which is why the 13th of the fundamental principles in Judaism is belief in the resurrection of the dead, of a godly physical reality. That the ultimate reward, the ultimate state of being, the ultimate connection to God is a physical life. But a physical life where we have learned to avoid in a real way, all of its downfalls. To only get the positive elements of the physicality and avoid its negative elements. And if you want to think about it like this, who has to follow who? The teacher, the student, or the student, the teacher? I, I, so on a very basic level, the student has to follow the teacher because the teacher knows things the student doesn't know. But at the end of the day, the point is that the student should know things, not the teacher. Not, not that the teacher should show off what they know. So spirituality is just the teacher of physicality, but the goal is the physicality because the physicality has the actual potential to grant us a genuine insight into God in a way that spirituality never can. And so it turns out that physicality is both the source of all of our evil and the most greatest gift God gave us. What does God have to be? It doesn't have to be anything, right? What does a physical thing have to be? A mountain has to be a mountain? No, it could erode into dust. The dust has to be dust? No. Right, because the spirituality, its material is totally loyal to that particular form, that particular role, that particular identity. And it, can... it almost has the hero. What? I don't want to get caught up entirely on... It does, say, it does say that a human being's ability to exercise free will depends on them being physical. The souls, souls do not actually have free will. They might have like potential for free will, but actual free will depends on having the body. Because what gives you the true freedom to have free will, the true freedom to redefine yourself, the true freedom to become different than what you are, is the fact that you're made of something which doesn't have to be what it is. It really doesn't. It could be something else. But that itself can be extremely destructive, too. Right? So to use the marriage analogy, right, would you like to be, would you like to be a, 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 just an adjunct to your husband or an autonomous woman? Would you like to have a stable, long-lasting marriage or a marriage that falls apart? So, in other words, that's the basic idea, right? Is that Judaism is saying that, we, that physicality is not bad, but we want only the good elements of it, right? We want to have something that is stable and something that is good and something that is peaceful and something that is constructive, but we want it to be physical because if it's physical, then that's coming from a place of autonomy and freedom and creativity and inherent self-worth rather than it being limited the way a spiritual entity is limited. And that's why the way angels hate people. All angels hate people. Even the ones that like us deep down hate us. Do you know why? Because they don't get it. They just don't get it. Have you ever, have you ever, like, you know, have you ever, like, 
met somebody who's very into, say, I don't know, like science or math, and they just don't get certain things. Like, they don't get art or they don't get... Like, they just don't get it, right? And then when everyone gets really worked up about it, they just find it very frustrating. Like, why are you worked up about this, this incoherent nonsense that nobody can make? That's how angels feel about people because they don't get physicality. To an angel, what do you mean you could just, like, remake yourself? What do you mean you just become something different? What do you mean you can just, like, ignore something? It, it, they find this absolutely mind-boggling. And in a deeper sense, a reminder that they really have no true conception of God. So it's also slightly humiliating for them. Which is why when God asks the angels about making people, they're not 100% on board with this idea. And when the Shem gives us the Torah, they're also not thrilled with this idea. Even though some angels are meant to be positive in their view to humanity, that's like on a deeper level, there's this sense of like, they just don't get it. And that means also that a lot of things we think of as negative, we have to be careful about dismissing. What's the difference between rebellion and autonomy? What's the difference between chaos and creativity? What's the difference between um, self-absorbed, self-absorption and intrinsic sense of self-worth? These are very subtle distinctions, right? Because they're the two sides of the same dynamic of physicality playing out in the human psyche. Angels don't have these problems. Demons don't have these problems. Spiritual beings don't have these problems. Your soul in Ganadin doesn't have these problems. But that means they also don't get to have any sense of what, what God is really like. To be, have intrinsic worth, to be truly autonomous, to be genuinely creative. But we want that with the positive elements without any of the negative sides. And for that, we need to model ourselves off of spirituality, which means we have to pursue and aspire to spirituality. So we ascend to spirituality, and then we use that to refine our physicality. And when that works in a healthy manner, then we have uh, the way God would like the world to be. Good? What's an example of how spirituality is like that? Um, so like, for instance, I mentioned that my wife and I are not on the same page about most things. Okay. The fact that, so if we were discussing an idea, right, and I were to say, okay, there's this idea, like, say, freedom. And freedom has this interesting paradox to it, that on the one hand, freedom means nothing, the more free I am, the less constrained I am in what I do, right? But if freedom is really a value, it's not limited to me. So then you're also free. That means you're not constrained in what you do. But now our freedoms contradict. And so there's this idea that if you start spreading freedom around, it starts contradicting itself, right? My freedom to do something comes to the expense of your freedom to do something else, right? Which requires us to have a, which requires us to reevaluate that the freedom maybe is a shallow sense of something, of some deeper value that we need to get in touch with, right? Seeing that conflict is a very constructive way of deepening our understanding of freedom, okay? My wife and I have different views on how to raise children, which are not really reconcilable. Like there are some fundamental attitudinal differences. But if I see that in that kind of a spiritual light, that the issue is just the form of the matter, then I see is there something constructive about my attitude and my approach interacting and having to confront her approach? And that some kind of refinement takes place and some deepening understanding of what's in the child's welfare takes place? Yeah, and so I don't feel the need to agree with my wife on everything. She doesn't feel the need to agree with me on everything. We just feel the need to like 
constructively interact. And now if we use that to guide our sense that we're each entitled to our own opinion about how to raise children, the spirituality is now guiding the physicality. On the other hand, if it becomes about who's in charge of child rearing in the family, well, that's an irreconcilable conflict that's going to lead to animosity and the breakdown of the family. And that would be physicality, not being guided by spirituality. And you can play that in many, 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 many things. Right? The autonomy, the freedom, the inherent self-worth, like all of those things are not bad, but when, they are ju- when, when, they're, when they're not given any context in which to relate to them, then they turn into things like ignorance, ego conflict, and just the destructiveness and everything constantly undermining itself and eroding. And so, and, and, and in that sense, the Torah is a guide to how to live a physical life that is godly. That's really what the Torah is. And it has, you know, it has ethical component and a halacha component and a, and a mystical component and a social component and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, so I have to, I have to escape my physicality to pursue spirituality in order to have a clear sense of the spirituality to then guide my physicality. That's the, the cycle. You live a life of mitzvahs, you go to Ganeid in a spiritual world, and then the soul comes back into the world of resurrection. It's the same idea on a more cosmic sense. This is why Judaism has very, you'll find very conflicting statements in Judaism about physicality from equating it with absolute evil to seeing it as rooted in the essence of God. Because if you think about it, it's a really good analogy, and as you put it, it's a really dangerous analogy. And those go hand in hand. Good? Yeah, that's one of the ways of explaining the idea of darkness over light. Yeah. That's what it's, uh, yeah, it's often related to that idea. There's a discussion if these are the same idea or they're different ideas. Is it also kind of the idea that that's the lowest comes from the highest? Right. Um, but those ideas are all related, but what I explained is considered to be deeper than those two ideas. Yeah. Um, and then there's discussions about the, what's the role of those ideas? How do they complement what's missing in this idea. Because lowest and highest could still within the realm of spirituality. Darkness and light could still within the realm of spirituality. This is, there's something more absolute here than there is in those ideas. Um, just because the physicality analogy is a good one, why does that mean that we should engage in it? Like, because that's what God did. As, no, but I'm saying, maybe I'm not, like you can see it as, okay, like almost like a Vodazar, right? A Vodazar is also a good analogy for God. No, it isn't. Not. What is a Vodazar? What is a No, this is actually a very bad analogy for God. What is a Vodazar? Well, like at its core, like, basic, 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 basic notion of a Vodazar. It's a thing that represents God. No, a thing that represents God is not a Vodazar. It's not a Vodazar. Well, it's a close it's a thing that is supposedly God, but is not God. It's a faker God. Okay. So that's not a good analogy for God, right? It's an, it's an analogy. It's like, no, let's say like the, the um, why did I just forget the Hebrew, the golden calf, the um, Hagar. Yeah. Isn't that 
it's it was the like the intention was oh now we can relate to it this is too esoteric this isn't God itself but it's something that we can relate it's an analogy to God so so there's di- there's there's, there's different there's there's different explanations if you follow that explanation the sin is that they made it not that it not that it's more tangible. Because you have to explain what's the difference between the golden calf and the physical base of Migdash. We have gold statues in the center of our temple. Like, come on, really. That our sages say represent God and the Jewish people. So like statues representing God, as much as we want to say is like idolatry, it's not clearly so idolatrous. No, so if that interpretation, I forget, the, 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 is that, the, the, I, forgot who the, I forgot who says it, but if you follow that interpretation, the, the sin, the, the Rebbe speaks about this idea also, he's not the first one. There is a notion of idolatry, I think Rabbi Yudha Levi says this in, in the Kuzari, but I'm not sure, is that there is a notion of idolatry is that man makes God in his image. In other words, if God sets an analogy for him, that's not a very desire. If I determine what represents God, that's a very desire. That's idolatrous. There, there is such a view of idolatry. So if I determine, because that what I'm, because if you think about it a little bit deeper, God is the arbiter of reality. So the minute I dictate what represents God, I've de-godified God. I've made God not God anymore. But if God says this represents me, that's godlike. So God says physicality represents him. How? How do we learn that? What? How do we learn that? That's this analogy. You want like a biblical source? Or you want a rabbinic source? I mean, this is an idea that's found in Jewish tradition. I'm just explaining it. That, that Hashem thinks physicality is the most... It represents him in some very fundamental way. Mm-hmm. Um, the, that because, again, if you really say, like, like, what is... Does God have to be something specific? No. Does physicality have to be something specific? No. Um, God, worth is just a mere product of his being. A physical, physical thing's presence, its value, it's, it's a fact that it has to be taken seriously, just a mere fact that it's there. Nothing to do with what it is. Okay. Um, uh, God is, is fundamentally free to, to do anything. Physicality can become anything. So when you start thinking about it, there's a lot of parallels. Now, I'm, I'm, that's just explaining the idea of it. This idea is, this idea is part of the tradition. Now, there's a whole other side of the tradition, which is to see the physicality as like the absolute source of everything negative in life, which is also true. And at different points, different aspects of Judaism will emphasize different things, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like I wouldn't go to a child and try and teach them the importance of physicality being, rep- being a good analogy for God because their relationship with physicality is so debased. Right? Would you go so far as to say, like, in order to really understand God, you need to really understand this analogy? Because this is the first time I've ever Yes, it. yes. But what you're starting to understand is not a matter of understanding. You have to really live that. So, for instance, like, when you realize, like, as a physical being, you really do have the power to just get up and walk away from anything. And so if you are doing anything, it's you who has to be deciding to do it. That gives you a kind of very deep insight into a God-like relationship with reality. Now, now you shouldn't believe you're God, but you should think God gave me that mode of being to have a deeper insight as to what it really means to be a God, to be a, a being who is totally autonomous and totally free. Is that us being in his image, literally? That's what that means? You, you could say that. 
But again, if I, if I take that power to just, if I take that aspect of my physicality and I just use that to live a life of total, you know, abandon, wanton abandonment and irresponsibility and, and allow myself to be dragged by every woman fancy that I have, I don't really feel autonomous and free. I feel like I'm caught in some self-destructive hedonistic loop. And so at that point, I'm very ungodlike, <laughs> even though it's drawing on that same capacity of physicality. Hence the need to live a life that is guided by spirituality, which means to set aside your physicality, pursue spirituality, and that's. When you get up in the morning, should you, should you think, okay, what's really important is I have food, or what's really important is that I act morally? Now, we all know instinctually which one we feel, and we have to work to feel the other way. Yeah? When I encounter a situation, I have to ask myself, should I act based on what seems convenient in the moment, or should I act based on what seems to be true, to be honest? Should I get upset about something that in 10,000 years nobody's going to care about or not? Right? When I cook, should I care about how the food tastes and the compliments I get? Or should I care about how it helps bind the family and, 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 and allow for us to live in a more unified way. Right? These are kinds of things where right? you're setting aside the physicality to pursue the spiritual. But then you're, not, you're using that to then guide you back into this, the physical thing, right? And you could do that, you know, different. People who are more profound do that on more extreme levels. You know, simple people like you and me do that on simpler levels, but... Yeah. The soul is there to be a guide for the body, but the body is there to help us know God. It's basically what it comes down to.